0: If you're able to remain standing, please do so. Either way, take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. This morning we want to read verses 26 and 27 of James chapter 1. I I think it's still on page 1011. It's real close. If it's not, if you want to just use a Bible from the church, you could grab that and uh, look at that. Either way, James chapter 1, Beginning at verse 26. This is God's word for us this morning. And here's what God says If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. It's holy, it's perfect. It's living. It's active. There is no word like your word. And now our prayer is that by the same Spirit of God who penned these words through James, that you would etch these words in our hearts and lives, that we would love them and cherish them, that you would literally transform us into what these words describe. For we pray this, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're still really in the same segment of James. The last part of the chapter 1 really is pertaining to the, the work of the Word of God in our hearts and lives. We were told last week For instance, in our passage, that we are to be not merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And as an outworking illustration of being a doer of the word and not a hearer only, James begins to explore the nature of true religion. James speaks of religion here in these two verses by contrasting what he differentiates as worthless religion with what he uh, uh, compares with pure and undefiled religion. Now, originally, I planned to take this morning and look at verses 26 and 27 together and uh, that's, just, that's just not going to, going to happen. Um, this morning, I want to look just at verse 26, which on the one hand is the first point in your outline there when religion is worthless. And, and yet the reason why I'm going to expand this and take a little bit longer, and Lord willing, we'll come back next week and hit verse 27, is that, is that before I look at the first point in our sermon outline, when religion is worthless, I want to really make that first point in your outline the second point of my sermon. And what I want to do as the first point of the sermon is I, I, I want to, uh, um, to think with you uh, about um, the nature of religion itself. So the first point is the nature of religion. The second point, then, is when religion is worthless or worthless religion. Now, the reason I want to do that is the longer I looked at this passage and tried to consider its point, um, I thought it might be helpful before we do the contrast in verses 26 and 27 between... um, uh, worthless religion and pure religion i thought it might be helpful to think about and weigh in um, with a thought or two about the the notion of religion or religious practice itself the reason i want to do that is i think we've made an overcorrection today in our subculture of christianity Today, we use the term religion or religious as a pejorative term, merely as a negative term. I mean, the last thing you'd want to be is religious. <gasps> yeah. and, and so that's just how we swagger. That's how we, how we do this. Uh, and the terms religion or religious have fallen out of favor in modern Christianity, so when we ask the question is christianity a religion oh, we don't any no we no longer know how to answer that question i suppose on the one hand it would it, it goes down to simply how we would define religion that has something to do with our answer is christianity of religion if we define religion merely as the human phenomenon of the observance of ritual, religious ritual, then Daenerys then is why we probably have a negative attitude toward the term religion. It's probably why most commonly today in Christian circles um, uh, we, we hear it said that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. Well, I think we very much should weigh in in a positive way about the fact that Christianity is about relationship. A relationship with the God who made us. A relationship with each other as a part of the family of God through Jesus Christ. You see, relational love is, in fact, at the core of biblical Christianity. 1 John chapter 4, a couple of verses I'll just read to you from there. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet he hates his brother, he is a liar. So we must affirm relationship, loving relationships as essential to biblical Christianity. We must elevate relationships way above mere religious rituals or religious practices or religious activities. And I suspect that it is in seeking to elevate relationship over ritual that we, with the best of intentions, subtract and deny and undercut some important aspects of Christianity. In stressing that Christianity is about a personal relationship with God, and it is we must be careful to not baptize the notion, pun intended, baptize the notion of of Christianity as relationship with the world's notions of individuality. See, unbeknownst, ironically, we could fly under the banner of Christianity as not a religion but a relationship, and we could do that for worldly motivations. Now, Christianity is is to be a personal experience. In other words, that it is to be truly experienced in our hearts. There's nothing commendable about mere super... Well, there's not much commendable about mere superficial Christianity... But we have to be careful that we don't make Christianity simply a personal experience, meaning that we get to personalize it to suit ourselves. We, if we're not careful, we, we could buy into the individualistic mindset of our culture, and we could say, now look, you've got your version of Christianity, and I've got my version of Christianity. You got your version of Jesus, and I got my version of Jesus. You got your truth, and I got my truth. And to state those sort of expressions is sub-Christian. Christianity is, after all, not that customizable. (laughs) No, no. Of course, I could die for a thousand clarifications, but uh, but and it's killing me. But but yes, it 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 gets Christianity does get faithfully worked out in various cultural settings. I I I I, I get that. But Christianity has some fixed beliefs and doctrines. Christianity has some required moral commands and virtues christianity even has some settled rituals and religious practices such as baptism and the lord's supper as well as the normative patterns and habits of gathering together for praying and for singing and for receiving the preached word them, them, things, them things are all religious things. Them things are all descriptors, descriptors and, and descriptions of that which is a religion. While Christianity does consist of a relationship, it is also a religion. It is a religion in which relationship is at the heart of it. It's a religion, (laughs) but it's the only true religion. But as a religion, it is about something much grander and bigger than your privatized personal religious experience. That's just the world talking when, when you hear people talk like that. It is about a commitment, a devotion to something bigger than ourselves and the, and the shivering quiver of our liver. I just had to say that every now and again. Thank you for letting me say that. Christianity calls us to identify with a people we would even be so out of touch with reality to say it even calls us to identify with an institution, i.e., a local church. It calls us to identify with a people, a gathered people, who submit to the doctrines, the morals, and the practices given to us in the Scriptures. At least that's how it got all started in the book of Acts, when Peter b- preached his first sermon, and carl was talk t- was teaching us about that this morning. Um, when people cried out, what should we do? Repent and be baptized. And then as it goes on, and they, and they, who's the they? The they who repented and baptized, it says there in verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to the prayers. In other words, they, they instantly got entangled in this relationship with Jesus. They got entangled with religious practices with each other. Committed to religious doctrines with each other, and we'll see as the book of the Acts unfolds, even committed to religious virtues and and moral orders with each other so so James directs us to practice a religion that that is certainly experientially tied to the person of God, but he he, he admonishes us to, for that religion to be pure and undefiled and not worthless. You see, so, do you see what he's pitting against it, 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 itself? He's not pitting relationship against religion. He's pitting worthless religion against pure religion. It is not religion per se uh, that we are to loathe. We are to loathe worthless religion. Particularly, particularly at the starting place, what gets first in line as to what we would loathe about worthless religion is that we would loathe um, whatever remaining vestiges and commitments uh, there are in our own souls to this worthless religion. So it's in that context. Now, that's the first point. And now we do the second point, which is in know, notes is the first point, if that makes sense. Verse 26, again, if anyone thinks he is religious, can I submit to you, he's not taking a cheap shot at being religious. He's just taking a shot at the person who thinks himself to be religious because he's going through religious motions, uh, and yet he says that he does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. You see, it, it, the terms, uh, re, the term religious here refers to. Re, I don't know, fill in the blanks, rituals or ceremonies or activities. and, and, And James isn't, he doesn't have a dog in that fight per se. He's not knocking religious practices. The Bible prescribes, as I've already alluded to, certain external practices that are even to be habituated by us. We're to make it a habit of gathering together. but an important component to the external routines of Christianity. And answering the question, why do we even come to church? I'm glad you asked. Is the impact that religious practices as prescribed in the Scriptures are designed to have upon the transformation of our hearts? In other words, biblically, such routines should be understood as, for lack of better description, what I will call, and I didn't coin this term, it's been around hundreds of years, but what understood is what what we could call the means of grace. We mean it in this sense, that it is the grace of Christ that our hearts need for true transformation. And yet such transforming grace comes to us through the means that the Bible prescribes by which we might grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Obedience to such biblically prescribed practices are the things required of us, and as we do them, as we avail ourselves to them, as we put ourselves in the middle of them, they become, by the Spirit of God, the vehicles for more grace, grace to reshape us grace to transform our hearts so helpful meaningful biblically prescribed routines and practices are meant to change our hearts religious activity religious ritual Habitually showing up here and praying together and singing together and participating in the preached word and taking in baptisms and uh, uh, participating in the Lord's table. Uh, These are not things to do because, I don't know, we're bored, and the football game hasn't started yet. No. These are life-transforming means of grace. it would be completely, the mind of the Bible would go for any of us to say, I really want to grow in Christ-likeness, but I don't want to go to church and participate in the routines at church. Huh? Do you not know how God has ordained these things to be worked out? James is not putting down religious activity, in and of itself. See, that's where I think we've overcorrected in the pendulum swing of is Christianity a religion or a relationship? If we, gather, if, we if we let it swing too far. It, and have a, just a pejorative description of religion, then that means we have a pejorative um, attitude toward the religious practices as prescribed by Scripture that are the kind means, the gracious means in which the Spirit of God does His work in our hearts. James is warning us, however. I think the the the, the purpose, the design of these two verses is to sober us up, if you would, as, as to what this matter is, is as, as it pertains to gathering together and engaging in the practices of the Christian religion. G, James is warning us against merely going through the religious motions in, in which we do the activities but without the engagement of our souls. So we would sing, not simply so that our, our, our mouths say a thing or two, but we would sing because, well, we can't not but help sing because these glorious things that we're singing about, this glorious God that we're singing to has thrilled our hearts. We're captivated by this. We're, we are overjoyed by this, and so we, we sing with soul engagement. We, we, we don't have to wait to the right guitar rift, not that I'm opposed to a guitar rift, but we don't have to wait until the right emotional beat of the song ignites our worship, because you know what? In that case, if it takes a certain beat to ignite your worship, then it's not a Spiritual affection, it's just a human emotion, which is fine. I like emotions too. But you have to differentiate between the fact that you could be emotionally enthralled about something and not be spiritually affected by something. So we gather and we engage in songs, we engage in prayers. And even though uh, it's just maybe one of us who gets up here and says the prayer, that doesn't mean that it's uh, la-la, doze-off time. It it means that our hearts are saying yes and amen as we resonate with uh, the, the articulation of prayers about God and to God, of petition and praise. In other words, our souls are engaged in that process. You see, James is warning us to to not simply do religious things without understanding that that there is a design to these religious things and that as our hearts might change as we meet with God and meet with His people and do the things He's ordered us to do. That means that we won't be so enthralled in the things themselves that we don't forget that, that while we really like the words of that song, what we ought to love more is the, is the Lord whom those words are about. That's when our souls are engaged in this song or this tune or whatnot. I mean, the, the point, the point, I think the, really the deeper point that James is getting at here if anyone thinks he's religion and does not bridle his tongue, in other words, there's not, there's not tongue transformation yet, uh, then, then he, uh, he deceives his heart. The point that James is making to us as he's addressing worthless religion is does our religious activity do any good? Does it result in transformational change in our lives? If it doesn't, then it becomes worthless to us. It is vain. It is actually activity that counts for nothing. It is actually an exercise, a religious exercise in religious futility. And what he says to that, and, 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 and such empty, vain, worthless, futile religious activity is just an exercise in self-deception. James seems to be concerned about this matter of deception, doesn't he? This is at least the third time, and we're not even out of chapter 1 yet, that, that he warns us to not be deceived. It refers to Deception. If if, if, if any of us are here practicing religious activity with no earnest desire to be morally changed, then you're deceived and your activity is worthless. Isn't James such a nice guy? Just gives you that warm, fuzzy kind of thing going on, doesn't he? No, he just he he's wanting to be honest with us. He's 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 just like I don't want to waste my time or your time. I, I, I don't want you to just go through religious ritual and, and and not understand the real purport of what it's to be about. It is to be about the means by which God would change us and transform us. And to be more specific, and this is where I'll narrow it as James narrows it. James narrows his discussion down to just one example. I, I don't think that he's trying to say that, that this is an exhaustive list. There's only one thing on this list that qualifies. For worthless religion. The tongue. This is just one example. It's a big example. Hmm. It's a big matter, our big mouths. Bridling or controlling the tongue. Most of us. You know, we, and we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't know what to make necessarily about the notion of bridling the tongue, especially if you grew up in the suburbs or the city or, or, or whatever. But it's really he's using a metaphor here, um, and and, and the, 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 the the thing he's trying to think is that is that the, the difficulty of controlling our tongue is is as much of a challenge as the matter of trying to rein in a one thousand pound horse in full gallop. course if we bump out our consideration to elsewhere in scripture the matter of controlling our tongue is just actually of course it doesn't make it any easier but the matter of controlling the the tongue is actually a matter of controlling ourselves The, the matter of bridling or governing our our, our our tongues is really a matter of bridling or governing our hearts. I say that because Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew 12. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. And the point he makes there is, for out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The tongue simply says what the heart tells it to say. Let me be a little more specific. Your tongue only says, not what my heart has told it to say, but your tongue only says what your heart has told it to say. You say, well, Joe, doesn't it cut both ways? No, it doesn't. Yeah. No, it does. I, in other words, my tongue only says that which you tell it to say. No, my tongue only says not which you tell it to say, but what I tell it to say. So if I want to control my tongue, I, I, I've, I've got to back up the train, and, I, and I've got to get a handle on how do you control the heart, for the mouth just... Yeah. For out of the... Overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The t- it's still alive. <laughs> so the tongue simply reveals. The- focus, focus. Don't get, Don't let your heart be distracted. The tongue simply reveals the heart. The tongue takes its orders from the heart. So bridling the tongue involves governing the heart. Controlling our tongues involves controlling ourselves. So, if the heart... uh, if the tongue only says what the heart tells it to say, when, the, when your mouth or my mouth issues filth and lies and gossip and slander and hateful, hurtful, critical, complaining words, I don't know where that comes from. Oh, yes, you do. Are we not simply expressing something about our own selves when we when we use those words when we use filth lies gossip slander hateful hurtful critical complaining speech we oftentimes think that we're expressing something about someone else or something else and yeah we are in that sense but we are evidencing something about ourselves that our hearts still are in need of change, that our hearts still have too much moral filth, hostility, meanness, arrogance, vile, unhappy, discontent, envious, embittered, unthankful layers. True religion targets the heart. Worthless religion worries about exteriors and never addresses the heart. That's why, to follow into the previous context, true religion is earnest about being a doer of the Word. Worthless religion loves to hear me some sermon. And then that's it. We're done. Nothing has to get done. Heart work is needed in in our lives. If we are to engage in the religious activity that the Bible prescribes us to engage in, then we are to do those with an aspiration, an ambition, a desire, a prayer, that these activities would be the very means by which Jesus would continue to do the work that he is ongoingly doing, that he has promised to do, that he who began a good work will bring it to completion. He will do that through the means that he has Prescribed. There's not a real one of us that still doesn't stand in need of transformational change of the heart in at least the one specific example of how the mouth talks. Now, again, James has already brought this up once before. You ought to be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to be angry. He's already talked about the tongue, the mouth, our speech, and and I'm just going to warn you. He's like, I wish Joe would get talking about that stuff. Well, as long as we're going through James, James ain't done with us yet. This, other words, this is no small matter. How we talk to and about each other, how we use our mouths, uh, how we characterize our speech, and I've I've dealt with it mainly as the passage itself has, dealt with it from a negative standpoint. We could also bump that out and say, so instead of filth and lies and gossip and splan- sp- slander, and hateful, hurtful, critical, complaining words. uh, That Certainly the Bible, when it tells us to get rid of some things, it also tells us to cultivate and put on some things. And so, so it's not just simply about bringing it back to zero, but it's also about cultivating these religious practices so that you and I know how to use our mouths in a way that no unwholesome talk comes out of our mouth. But only that which is helpful helpful for who? Because You see sometimes how we use speeches. You know what? I just got to say this. It's going to make me feel better. That's not the reason you use your mouth. You don't use your mouth to feel better about yourself. You use your mouth to build somebody else up. You say, well, I'm about to say something that ain't going to be building, building up. Then shut up. Or should I not say shut up? Kids, if your parents told you to say, don't say that, then don't say that. So they said, well, why does the preacher get to say that? Because they're not my parents. You know, anyway. Uh, we are to use words to encourage and to build up and to edify and to stimulate people toward love and good deeds. And yet to, to, to leverage our tongues toward those directives requires that we think carefully, not about dissing, dissing, about throwing out religion. I don't know if that's the right word or not, dissing. Religion altogether, but by understanding that it is these very religious practices that God has kindly ordained for us to engage in. Not that we would be, be Ill, uh, have an attitude toward them, but that we would understand their proper purpose to target our hearts, to transform us. God, would you meet with me as we show up for church at 10.30 on Sunday morning? Would you meet with me? We're going to sing some songs. We're going to pray some prayers. We're going to, we're going to hear the Word preached. And once a month, we're going to have the Lord's Supper. And, and as, as occasion fits, we're going to baptize. And, and yet, the Lord, use those things not as just perfunctory religious things that we go through. When we don't know why we're doing them. But, but use those things to, to give me grace, to give me aid from your Spirit We each are in need of tongue transformation, rooted and grounded in heart transformation. Let me close with this. This is is why Christianity is a religion, but it's the only true religion. And and that is, then how do we do change? How do we do heart change? How do we do tongue change? Well, we we do that through the Christian religion in an altogether different way from any other religion. And I mean it like this. In every religion except for biblical Christianity, now there's some sub Christian versions that are errant as well. But every biblical version of Christianity uh, is is different from every non-Christian religion. Every non-Christian religion, essential, and sub some some sub-Christian religions teach this: that in order, in order to get God to love you, you better start making some changes, big boy or girl. That mouth of yours. Do you think God loves you with that mouth of yours? And that ain't the half of it. You know why God doesn't like you in that mouth of yours? Because he doesn't like your heart. And so you better start changing that heart. You better start changing that mouth. Or God's going to come get you. Because he don't like you at all. And out of fear... Out of dread, then all the religions of the world figure out some hoops to jump through. Uh, I gotta see, I gotta say five hail this is, or I, I've gotta do these um, daily prayers, or I've got to, all these religious things that, that are rooted and grounded in a false notion of, 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 of how one thinks one might earn God's love or favor, which biblical Christianity sets all of those religions on its head. And it honestly comes to us in says, you know, your mouth is ugly. Your heart is ugly. You say, wouldn't that damage our self-esteem? Well, if you just leave it like that, yeah. But we ain't, I'm not done talking yet. While we were still sinners, while we still had unlovely mouths, connected to unlovely hearts. God showed His love for us in that Christ died for us. He loved us when we were unlovely. He loved us when we had no prospects or interests, honestly, of loving him. He sends Jesus as a supreme act of infinite love on a rescue mission, not to rescue good, fine, upstanding religious people, but to rescue unlovely people, those who are not even worthy of such love. Jesus lays down his life and there on the cross he experiences what unlovely people should justly experience the taste of hell and then by his spirit as he raised Jesus from the dead, and as this word of truth is proclaimed, he brings us forth by that word of truth, as he said back in chapter one, verse 18. And he joins us to Jesus through faith. And it is this Love of God found in Jesus in which he joins us to Jesus, meaning he loves us as much now as he loved his son Jesus for all eternity. It is this love that changes us. It changes what we love. We are changed by his love. You see, Christianity is about relationship. It is a religion of love. But that resets our own hearts and lives so that we don't merely affirm the doctrines of the Christian religion. We love them. We, 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 we don't merely accept the moral virtues of the Christian religion. We love them. We don't merely acknowledge the, 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 the religious practices of the Christian religion, we love engaging in them. We do not merely want to be hearers, but we love being doers. We do not simply assent that our religion changes us by the love of God. We love that our religion changes us by the love of God. You see, we don't normally think of our obediences as really stemming from God's love for us. We think of our obediences as that which we begrudgingly do. Saying, there, I did what God told me to do. You're happy? Well, you don't understand the gospel yet. We we see engagement in the religious practices. Oftentimes the same way we see paying our taxes. That is, they're making me do it. And what I hope is that after they make me do the amount they make me want to do, that there's a little bit left over so that I might go do something I like. We oftentimes look at religious Practices the same way. Well, I don't really like doing them, but. But I hope there's some time left over that I can go do something I love to do after I'm done doing what I'm obligated to do. Worthless religion. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for what your word says to us and teaches us. Thank you above everything else about how your word points us to Jesus, the one who lived the life required of us, the one who died in our place, the one whom you've raised, the one whom you now declared to be Lord and Christ, the one whom you now command all people everywhere to repent and trust in Jesus. Oh, Father, may the very presence of Jesus by your Spirit flood into our hearts and lives, and may the first difference that makes is how it alters our loves and our desires, so that in doing the things you've ordered us to do, you might change our hearts. You might even change our mouths, for we pray this in Jesus' name.